Hello and welcome to the Displaced African. The Displaced African is the African immigrant's personal development blog, which can be found at www.thedisplacedafrican.com. Hello everybody, this is Mwangi here from the DisplacedAfrican.com podcast and today's interview is with Julia Sana, based out of Florida and the reason that I recorded this interview is because I wanted to have a relationship manifesto. I wanted to basically put out there, um, Julia does this for a living, she studied it in school, she has a lot of empirical data which I really liked and so I wanted to get someone who actually has walked the walk, talked the talk, researches it, knows what she's talking about in terms of relationships and get her on the phone and you know, so that we can give some useful advice because I'm sure as a lot of you will know or those of you who are online, the African uh, blogosphere, the African internet, especially um, if you read what young people write about, is just littered with opinions. Even I have my opinions, which is one of the reasons I stopped giving more and more opinions. So everyone has their opinions on what makes a good relationship. So I really wanted to get someone who knows what she's talking about, has lived it, researches it, helps people achieve these goals. And so I want to thank Julia so, so much for helping me put this together. I think this is the first of its kind. Hopefully it will not be the last. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great week and enjoy. Hello, everybody. This is Mwangi here, and I'm on the phone with Julia. How are you, Julia? I'm doing good. That is good. That is good. So that people um, understand where you're coming from, give um, a brief. It doesn't have to be very brief, but just, um, I guess, your biography, where you've come from, so that people understand where you're coming from when you speak. Okay. Well, I am a Kenyan by birth. I was born and raised in Nairobi, and I just... I uh, got done with graduate school here in West Palm Beach, Florida, back in June. I am a wife. I've been married for eight years now, since 2000. We have a three-year-old, and we have another one on the way due in February. So um, it's a little bit of everything going on. And what I love doing, I do uh, relationship education, and I do counseling in my church. So That's your vocation. Yeah, yeah, but I'm also a musician. I've done, um, I first came to the U.S. actually doing music, um, touring with an African band. So that's the other thing that we do, but we do it mostly on Sundays at church and all that. So. Okay. And how long? Yeah, that's just a little bit. Okay, and how long have you been abroad? Ah, let's see. Off, for school since 97, but before that I've been here on and off on tours since 94. Wow. So you've, you've pretty much seen, you've been seeing immigrant life for 14 years now, correct? Yeah, yeah. I've kind of gotten, yeah, yeah. I have a good idea about what goes on and all the different aspects of it, yeah. So I guess, in general, how have you seen, before we get into the main stuff, how have you seen, like, um, the, like a country like the States change for immigrants over those 14 years? Uh, well, right now, especially after the attacks and all that, it's, it's gotten really um, tough for people to be here. Um, and also, actually, statistics show the number of people applying to come in has dropped based on that. Um, and I think it was a little friendlier in the 90s and right now. I mean, uh, even though it is a place where, of course, it's funded on immigrants and all that, it's kind of gotten hard in the last couple of years, only because... Of course, they're concerned about security, rightly so, but 
um, it's gotten a little hard for people coming in. And, and so you have a lot of people actually opting to attend schools in other parts of the world. So that's one of the main changes that every, anyone can tell you they've seen here. Okay. All right. So to get, I guess, to the main questions. Um, actually, before our hand, um, just explain a bit more about, because I was going through your website, and your website, your, your business, is it to a large extent it focuses on the first seven years of marriage? Yes. Yes, so what we do, it's called earlyfamilyyears.org, and what I do, I work with couples actually starting from their dating life and the first seven years of marriage, because research has shown if you have a strong foundation in the beginning, chances are you'll be able to weather your the stuff that comes afterwards. And so the first seven years are really, really crucial in how you start off and the things that you deal with and if you learn how to adjust earlier on in the beginning. Um. I remember I was uh, talking to uh, Ekene Gabois. I interviewed him quite a few months ago, and something he said was that the decisions that you make today will affect, you know, the next ten years of your life. And so, what I'm wondering is, is that as is that as dramatic as you as as I'm hearing? As in, what happens in those first seven years pretty much determines your destiny to a large extent, or is there a lot more room for changing and adapting, or is it after those seven years? the habits tend to get ingrained and the path tends to get set? Um, I would say actually what you decide, kind of what you decide in your first two years will determine, it will determine the tone of your marriage, uh, pretty much. But it's possible to have a change. But what we do, just because of the, the risk, the numbers that we've seen of couples getting divorced within the first three years, that's why we try to emphasize. I, and I'm involved in it a lot on doing premarital counseling, because a lot of people get surprised by some of the stuff that comes with them, and they should have known, they should have had an idea about that before they get married. Um, and so there's room to change, but anybody knows. It's a little hard to change when you've already gotten into it. So it's a good idea to know what you're getting into before or right after. And that way you can kind of set a good tone for your marriage for the coming years. Okay. So... Yeah. I guess then, I guess then the most important question would be what exactly is a successful romantic relationship? Yeah. You know what, that's a good question because everybody kind of has a different idea on that. But one of the things I noted and actually one of the things I do when I do the counseling with um, engaged couples or couples who are kind of thinking about it, whether to get serious or not, one of the questions that I have is what is non-negotiable for you in choosing a future life partner? Um, and also, if you're, if you're dating right now, are you dating for short-term fun, just to have fun in the meantime, or are you dating with a long-time uh, plan in mind? And that way you kind of start uh, formulating what is non-negotiable for you. Um, and for some people, it's different things. Maybe it's their background, how they grew up. Uh, maybe it's where they grew up. Um, it could also be, for some people, it's also the income levels, education levels. And so if you have one thing that you know is non-negotiable, that helps you to kind of narrow the field. And then also you have stuff that's negotiable. Um, do they really have to be from a particular area? Do they really have to speak a particular language? Do they, you know, all that. Because you can kind of switch on that. Do they have to be a particular race, actually, since we're talking about immigrants and African immigrants? Because people are marrying across tribes and also across ethnicities. So you kind of have to work with that too and decide what's negotiable for you. And then after that, then you have your own set of values 
on what the other person should believe and, and what you believe and see kind of if your stuff matches up. So for me, um, the most successful relationships I've seen are based on sharing common values. That's a huge deal. So, um, this, um, cause, you know, you, you hear this quite, quite a bit, especially in the media about how, you know, people across cultures can meet and with entirely different backgrounds and entirely different, um, ways of looking at the world, they can fall in love and the only thing that will hold them together for the rest of their lives is that eternal bond of love. You know, it, it's like the storyline of the movie The White Messiah and stuff like that. So what yeah. I'm gathering from what you're saying is that that's not necessarily the case, that it's those commonalities and those shared values that tend to actually create the relationship. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And actually, when I was growing up, and a lot of romantic, we had a lot of romantic um, ideas, especially as teen girls, that all you need is love and the whole world is okay, and that's not true. You need a lot more than love in marriage um, to sustain it. Because, And I always share with couples, it's possible to be in love with your husband, in love with your wife, but you don't like them every day. So there's a difference between love and liking. And liking comes in when you share common values. Um, and actually, the research has shown that opposites don't really work that well in marriage for a long time. And so they're moving towards making couples compatible. And when you think about the mating, um, dating shows actually, and even online, some of these dating websites, what they rely on is compatibility, not how different you are, but how similar you are in your values and, and what you think is important for you. So I would say love is a huge part of the equation, but there's a whole lot of other things that need to be together too. Okay. So, okay, yeah. we'll, co- we'll come back to love. But... Um, okay. Back to the the non-negotiables. What what um, non-negotiables have you tended to notice tend to result in the best type of relationships? Because you know there, there are people who have very weird non-negotiables, like you know she can't have toes that look like I don't know, like I don't know, like the <laughs> crow's feet or something. You know, people just have very weird rules, even subconsciously. Yeah. So what what type of non-negotiables tend to work best? Well, you have to think about it. And in our, in our case, well, our generation doesn't really have to worry, for example, about um, bigamy or somebody being married to more than one wife or one, well, one wife. We don't really have to worry about that in our generation right now. But for some people, it's a big deal. Do you want a partner who has a child from a previous relationship or a previous marriage? Um, also, you want to find out what kind of relationship. Some people are non-negotiable. Is also what kind of relationship they have with their parents. Because the surprise, well, it's not really a surprise, but if you find a guy or even a girl who has a horrible relationship with the mother or the, or the dad and you can't quite figure out why they have a horrible relationship, that could be a red flag for you. Especially if you find a man who doesn't respect his mother, that's not going to board well for the wife. And if you find a wife who also has issues with her dad, that problems in the marriage. Because what we do, unconsciously we tend to expect our husbands and our wives to behave the same way our parents did, of the same sex. And we don't always want to say that out loud, but it's the truth. So those are some of the things you want. some people find non-negotiable. How does, how does a partner treat their parents? How do they, what's their relationship with their own family? And then um, what's their kind of history? Do they have a criminal history? I don't know a lot of people who, might, who want to date or be in a constant relationship with someone who has a constant criminal history, so to speak. So those are some of the non-negotiables I've seen people work with. Other people, 
um, also tend to be based on religion. You don't want to date anybody who is out of your religion. There are people who have that non-negotiable, that the person has to share your particular Christian belief or whatever other religion you're practicing, that you want them to share that. Okay. So that, that has been my experience on that. And how many people do you, um, do you tend to notice actually f- like stick to their non-negotiable list? Uh, a lot of people do, but what they do, sometimes what they do, they might calm down maybe just a little bit on the non-negotiable. They might, um, they might say, for example, let's talk about the child out of wedlock. In today's um, society, there's a lot, sometimes there's a lot of that going on. So you might find somebody saying, well, he has a child out of wedlock, or she has a child out of wedlock, and, and that was not in my plan. I, I didn't plan on being a step-parent so soon. But the fact that they're taking care of their child shows me that they're responsible. And so um, for some people, they'll be like, okay, I can work with that, because they're actually showing a sense of being responsible and being a provider or being a caregiver. And so they might come down on that. That would be a hard uh, non-negotiable. And then for some people also who happen to share very strong religious views, they might actually choose to lower them a little bit and go and maybe date somebody who doesn't believe as strongly as they do. Now, it's very rare that you find, well, there are some cases where you have people having totally different religions, but it tends to be rare. People kind of tend to gravitate towards the same level of belief. Um, and then if, um, if they don't even share any religion at all, then they're glad not to have to negotiate on that. So those are some of the things that I've seen. Um, and also when you talk about income levels, sometimes it tends to be on the women, on the female side. Sometimes women will negotiate on that. Maybe they had a particular income level they want the guy to be at, but when they meet the guy, they like him, they like every other thing about him, his personality, his character, his relationships. Um, with his family and all that, and so they go like, well, he's starting out, so he's not going to have a big salary right now, but at least he's trying. And so they kind of negotiate that down, because other factors weigh heavy at that point. So that's the way I've seen it, kind of swing. Just as, an in, just as a segue, um, in that statement you said he's he's trying. So when a, when women tend to make that decision, are they making that decision with the back of, on the back of the mind thinking, well, he is eventually going to earn more a lot of the time? Yeah, if, if finances are a big deal for them, if, if the finances are a big deal for the woman, she might look at that. Like, for example, if she, if she sees a guy is making less money, but he did actually finish college, meaning he's just in an entry job at the moment, out, right out of college, then she's looking ahead and saying, well, he just started his job, so he's not going to earn something that someone who's been working in the field has been earning for a while. And so they look at that and they go, like, well, at least he's on the right path. Because what I found out with a lot of my friends, actually, not even just the people I'm counseling with, one of the things that we used to look at when we were in the dating process was does the guy have a plan for life? Is he just aimlessly wandering along hoping something happens? Or do they actually have a plan on how they want their life to go? And so that applies to their job and their careers, too. Do they, have a, do they seem to have a plan or are they just kind of letting life happen to them? Because women are more drawn to guys who are making life happen, not waiting for life to happen. Okay. And so now to, to get back to, to love, what, what is the role of... Actually, first of all, I guess let's define love. How, how would you define love, the way, the way you understand it? You know what? Um, 
earlier on, back in when I was a te- when I was nineteen, eighteen, to me love was a feeling, and you fell in love, and, and then it was all this crazy stuff. You can't live without the person. You're dreaming about them, all that good stuff. And then as I got a little older, about well, not that older, but at twenty-one, and I first, I I started dating my husband when I was twenty-one. And he said something that was really shocking to me because he told me, I don't believe in falling in love. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, no, love is a choice. You make it with your mind and you believe it in your heart. And I was like, that doesn't really, it sounds very cold. But when I thought about it, I realized I did agree with his way of looking at it. Because you do have to make a choice to love somebody. Because even if you fall in love with someone and you get blinded to all these, maybe they're red flags or high red flags, what happens when you find out there's other stuff going on? then if love is a choice for you, then you choose to love them no matter what. But if you just fell in love, then you can easily fall out of love, which is the problem we're having now. A lot of people feel, I just fell in love, which means after a while when that feeling, just the feeling subsides, then they find it easy to fall out of love and then switch their spouse for a different one because you're searching for that exciting feeling. So for me, love is caring about someone really more than you care about yourself. Um, and also everything else that somebody says, you want to share your life with them, their, everything you think about. But I think the main thing is that you love them and that you, 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 you want the best for them even more than you want it for yourself. So it's kind of a sacrificial thing when you think about it. But then again, I do have a Christian background on the whole love idea. So for me, it's that sacrificial um, attitude towards another person. So, so what you're saying is it's much more of a choice, a conscious choice, as opposed to um, an an, emo- an emotion or feeling or anything that's not within our control. It's love is something that is very much within our control and something that we do. Is that would that be a good way of putting yeah. it? Yes, but I'm not discounting the emotion because the emotion is a fun part of it. It's really, really fun because that's when all of a sudden everybody says, oh, the sky was blue, blah, blah, blah. You know all that good stuff. Yeah. All of a sudden I can hear the birds singing. That's cool. I mean, you need the emotion because that's what makes, and, and, and we were created that way, to have that emotion um, gear us up to even be more sacrificial towards the person because that's the first act of love that you do unto, you really do unto them as you would have them do unto you. But really, you even give more than you normally would give, which which brings in the sacrificial part of it that I was talking about. And that brings in the choice aspect of it. So to me, love is choice and emotion combined. Okay. So um, to separate the two again for a moment, what would you say is the, uh, is the best, is the role of the emotion, what, and what is the role of the choice? Or do they always intermingle all the way through? Uh, yeah, they intermingle. I think for most people, what we feel at the beginning when we meet somebody who's exciting, we first have an emotion about them. We have a, we have what they call the first impression about them. Then after, as we get to know them, we start getting this funny feeling about them. It, uh, it's an emotion at that point. And then for some people, they're not sure they're falling in love until they realize. Again, you see the word I use, falling in love. They don't realize they're starting to have that feeling. And then sometimes it hits them really hard and they're like, I can't believe I feel that way about them. And then after that, they have to make a choice. Is this a relationship worth pursuing or is this a bad relationship that I shouldn't be pursuing? And therefore the choice comes in there. Because then you start finding out things about them and then now you have to make the choice. Do you continue giving yourself to that feeling or do you actually let your head come in too and judge? 
So for me, I really would say that um, a head, the head, part of it makes a big deal. The head helps you with your choice, and the heart gives you the feeling. I don't know if that makes sense to you. The head gives you the choice, and the heart gives you the feeling. It does. It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah, yeah. Because then that way you get them working in conjunction, and chances are you kind of find a good way out of it. Because you've had people say, uh, my heart is telling me this, but my head is telling me this. And you kind of have to find the balance between the two about a person. Okay. Yeah. And now to shift gears and talk about the difference between sexes, do you tend to find that even in this uh, post-feminist, uh, much more, I would use the word egalitarian, much more equal society, that yeah. the desires of the sexes are the same, or are they, diff- are they still quite different? You know what? That's a funny thing. They're still different. They're still different. Even though um, people, well, feminists, hardcore feminists is what I'll say, they would like to say that we are equal on every aspect, but that's not true. Research doesn't show that. Hardcore research, science research, evidence-based, does show that we have some strong gender differences in how we even prefer to do things and what what makes us special. For example, they give a very... Um, It's not really a scientific example, but I'll give it anyway. For example, when you watch the way a girl carries books, they carry books on their chest. They hold books to their chest. When you watch a guy, he holds books to his hips. And there's a whole difference. A guy is not going to be walking around clutching stuff to his chest. But for a girl, it's that nurturing. We have a natural, nurturing spirit within us. And so everything that we feel is important tends to be close to our heart. And so for a woman... I still find on most of the stuff that I that I do research on or the couples I work with, the women tend to be uh, a lot more emotional um, in that everything ties to their emotions. They, we think with our heads too, but it's also very emotional. And we also tend to communicate a lot. We want to talk a lot. We want to talk about stuff. But guys tend to want the solutions. They just want to uh, focus immediately on the solution and kind of fix it. Um, they want to make everything okay, and that's good, but you kind of need a blend of the two, which is what I spend a lot of my time uh, when I work with engaged couples, trying to get them to see each other's side so they can kind of come to a place where they agree. Because, again, communication is the biggest deal in any relationship. And so when you kind of get them to um, be on the same level, kind of get to see each other, um, what each other is thinking, then it, then it helps. So... In that respect, equality is very different in a relationship because we don't think the same um, and we might not totally share the same exact beliefs about every single thing. And then our priorities might not be exactly the same at the same time. Um, And so you kind of find that being a big gender difference. And when uh, people accept that, then it kind of helps you. Now, that doesn't mean that a guy can't stay home with the kids and the girl goes to work because that's happening a lot nowadays depending because maybe the husband has a good IT, for example, IT consulting they can do at the house while watching the kids, but the wife has to attend a regular job because her job requires her to be on site, like 9 to 5. And you have couples who are making that switch, and that's not traditionally been how it happens. But for them, that works, and, and for them, that's being equal. So okay. it kind of depends on each couple. Okay, so what tends to be the differences the non-negotiables amongst the sexes? Ah, differences and non-negotiables. I would think, um, like I say, this is really, a lot of people are kind of surprised about it, and most guys will tend to gravitate. If they're looking for a serious life partner, 
they will tend to gravitate to somebody who reminds them of their mother. Only because this tends to be the primary person whom they got a feeling <laughs> or knowledge. A lot of people would of, like hearing that. <laughs> I know, I know, because if you don't have a good relationship with your mom, then that's a problem. But guess what? Uh-huh. Guess what? There's nothing... Um, actually, when you think about it, it's really interesting because they're looking also for the nurturing. And and that's why one of the questions I ask couples and I'm counseling them for doing, uh, whatever premarital counseling I would ask them, what did your parents do on the weekend? Like, what did your mom do on the weekends? And what did your dad do on the weekends? And then I ask them, what are you expecting your partner to do on the weekends? And they're really shocked when they, when they reply and they find out they're replying exactly what their parent, their opposite sex parent did, is what they were expecting their wife, their future wife, or their future husband to do. Because they're, they're our earliest role models. That's the first person we learned about how the opposite sex should be. And also... Um, our choices are also influenced by, by if you don't like your parents, if you don't like your dad, or if you don't like your mom, then chances are you're like, I want somebody whose personality is totally opposite from my mom, totally opposite from the, my dad, which still means they're influencing kind of what you're looking for. But I think that that kind of explains, that kind of explains it. Wow. <laughs> but you know what? I, 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 do have, I know what somebody will come out and say. It sounds very, um, cookie sounds very Freudian. No, I'm not a believer, actually. I'm not a believer in, in any <laughs> I don't think I believe anything at all about the whole Freudian psychology part of it. But it's true that our parents really, really do influence how we believe and what we do. You think about an African man. When was the first thing that you learn um, when you're hanging out at home? You see what your dad does? Do they go and sit with the guys? For example, when you go up country, what do they do? Do they go sit by the fire and roast the meat? Or are they participating with the women? Chances are they're not participating with the women. The women are doing something different. And so you kind of gravitate there. The, guy, the boys tend to move around and hang out with the other boys, and the girls tend to move around and hang out with the other girls. So without knowing it, we unconsciously already gravitate to the roles we think we all should play when we grow up. So, of course, when you grow up and in a marriage, that's the gender difference that's going to come up. But like I said, with the whole equality um, equality movement, uh, some things overlap and some things do switch around. I have counseled couples where the guy was more nurturing than the woman. For example, the guys um, tend, might tend to even prefer to be the one taking care of the children of the home. And that, that normally throws some people off, but sometimes that's how it is and that's what works for the couple. So what I tell couples is, if it works for you, and you have a plan on how to keep it working, then stay with it. Okay. So, and so, yeah. even the women tend to be looking for their fathers. Not looking. <laughs> okay. No. 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 I, I, of course, I, I don't mean. I, I mean, of course, metaphorically. You know, they look. Metaphorically, people similar. Your, <laughs> yes. The behavior. Yeah. The be, to be more specific, actually, the behavior, how your um, how your father treated your mother actually, um, and how you saw them relate to people, that's kind of what you might be looking at or not looking at, too. It might be what you don't want. Because there are tons of, like, in this generation, there are tons of kids who are growing up in single-parent homes. Um, they don't have their dads there. Most of the time, it's the dads who are not there. And so they've grown up with that void, actually, in their lives. And so that presents a whole different thing when they're dating. That's a whole different problem when they're dating. What does that tend to result in? Well, it depends. Uh, my experience is that two, 
there are normally two ways that girls respond, especially in your teenage years. They tend to either uh, you totally totally gravitate towards boys, like boy crazy, and and you know that whole phase of how many guys can you see, meet, get to know, all that good stuff. But then there's also the other uh, the other opposite end where they tend to be um, averse to guys at all. They really don't want to hang out with any guys. They're not trusting guys because the person in their life who was supposed to be there for them, the role model on how males should behave, wasn't there. So you find girls either fall, tend to fall, I'm not saying they all do, but they tend to fall on the totally boy crazy and sometimes go to the extreme of being actually very promiscuous and maybe a little careless in who they get intimate with to on the other extreme end being totally averse to men and being very mistrustful of men. Now you do find some who fall in the middle, maybe because they do also have other role models who help them kind of shape. Like if you have a good uh, role model in your older brothers or younger brothers or even uncles, like and talking about African families, our families are extended. We always have interactions with uncles, you know, um, grandfathers, grandparents, which was my case. Those are the people who influenced me, watching my uncles, my grandparents, my older brother. And so I got a good idea on how different men behave in different times. And so that kind of shapes you too. If, if you have an absent father, that kind of shapes your, your view and you can kind of correct um, correct any of the extremes that you might have had in that that time and that was the end of part one with my interview with julia sana uh this interview was a long interview the longest i've ever done it was in three parts um actually i split it into three parts because it was one hour and 30 minutes so it's in three 30 minute chunks so the other parts should be coming out over the next fortnight i hope this has been of use to you if you have any questions any comments um visit the displacedafrican.com um, and look for, look for where this podcast is, leave a comment, or just write me an email, let me know what's on your mind. Anyway, as I said, I hope this is um, the first of many relationship manifestos where rather than complaining about what we lack in terms of relationships, you know, say, talking about how, you know, women come here and change. Um, anyway, I won't go into the complaints, but rather than complaining about what we don't have here as a community, we share we share what we, what we what's unique about us, what we can use to have more beautiful, more wonderful, more nurturing relationships because relationships truly do matter. So anyway, again, have a fantastic, fantastic week. Have one of those weeks that will define you for the rest of your life in a good way. And this is Mwangi here, and I am out. This has been the Displaced African Podcast. The Displaced African is the African Immigrant's personal development blog. You can find it at www.thedisplacedafrican.com. 